Good morning, everyone. Today we are reading from John chapter 4, verses 27 through to 42. Now, I'm actually picking up a story midway through where we left it last week. So uh, last week we learned about the Samaritan woman, and we finished the story last week just as she learned that Jesus is the Messiah. So we're now picking up the story after she knows that. So please follow along either in the blue Bibles on your chairs or on the screen behind me. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor." Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Thanks, Corin. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Adam. Uh, if I haven't met you before, I'm a regular here at CLG, uh, and it's my privilege to bring you this message this morning. Uh, the title of my talk today is called Run and Tell It. So I want you to all think of a time when you heard good news and you just had to go and tell someone. Uh, we had a moment like this in our family on Mother's Day last year. We were all kind of gathered around my mother-in-law giving her cards and presents and that And then my brother and sister-in-law gave her a card that said, Happy Grandmother's Day. You could almost kind of see like the light bulbs going on above people's heads around the table, you know, some faster than others, as this news of a new baby coming into the family kind of dawned on all of us, the first grandchild. It was such a happy, happy moment. There's joy in hearing good news yourself, isn't there? But your joy is multiplied when you get to share it with others. Can you relate to that? It's easy to share good news about things like our kids or a new role at work. But how do we feel about sharing the good news of the gospel? Maybe you're excited by it. Maybe you're just like looking down at your feet going, please don't pick me, please don't pick me, please don't pick me. Or maybe you're kind of somewhere in between. Wherever you're at, I think we all can't help but say, if only it was as easy as all the other good news. Look at the response of the woman in her story today. 
Her response to hearing this good news, this life-changing message of the gospel, is to run and share it. This gospel message, you know, the message that through Jesus' death and resurrection, our sins are forgiven, our debt is paid, we are made right with God, and we can find total satisfaction and total fulfillment in this life and in the next. It's this message that's the focus of the text today. She doesn't overthink it. She just runs and shares it. So as we go through, I want us to think about this, uh, how this gospel message impacts us in our evangelism. How important is it? What could I possibly do with it? We've got three headings to take us through. They're written there in your outline if you're taking notes. The first, it's my priority to share. The second, it's my part to play. And third, it's Jesus' word that saves All will come to make sense as we go through, hopefully, but before we jump in, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for the good news of the gospel. I pray that today we would have a renewed passion for sharing this message and that you would help me to faithfully handle your word this morning. Amen. All right, let's get into it. It'll be helpful uh, if you have your Bibles open there as we go through just to follow along. So point one, it's my priority to share. Um, As I grow up, I realize more and more the importance of having priorities. Uh, I think it stemmed mainly from moving into a house last year where there are hundreds of jobs that I could be doing at any one time. You know, there are easy things and there are hard things. There are things that have to be done right now and there are things that can wait. Of course, and maybe this is your experience in your household too, the opinion of what is urgent and what can wait may differ between people in the household, but that's okay. All lists have priorities whether explicit or not. Now, in my work in healthcare, we have a strict system of priorities. All patients are triaged into categories ranging from life-threatening to stub-toe. If we're on our way to like a priority five case, that's probably nothing, and a priority one life-threatening case comes in, we get diverted from that lower priority case to the higher thing. We leave the lower priority behind and our focus shifts to the thing of higher importance. Now, this doesn't always work. You know, we're often going priority one cardiac arrest to people just having a nap, but the system does generally help us sort through the mess and get us to where we need to be. If we just tried to do everything equally all the time, we would just end up spinning around in a circle and not going anywhere. We need to have priorities. Some things are important, some things are urgent, and some things just don't matter at all. Look at the woman in our story today. Jesus redefines her priorities in just one conversation. She's thirsty, and Jesus shows her how to get living water so she will never thirst again. He tells her that he is the Messiah, and it's obvious that her priorities shift. Her faith goes from that priority five to priority one, life or death. We know her priorities have changed because after she has heard Jesus, look there in verse 28, she leaves her water jar behind and she runs into town to tell others. Now, why does she leave her jar? Of course, it's physically easier to sort of move and travel without the jar. That's one reason. But I think that there's a deeper reason here that shows us that the woman is leaving behind her old way her old reliance on earthly and worldly water in favor of finding her satisfaction in Jesus alone. 
John, the writer of this gospel, obviously felt it was important enough to include in the details. This woman has left her reliance on earthly water behind in favor of the eternal living water of the gospel. So friends, what is your water jar? What is it in your life that you cling to, rely on, trust in to sustain you? Something that you fill up with stuff and status and value that you look for, for your security and your fulfillment. We all have something like this. What is holding your earthly water and keeping you back from tasting the eternal living water of the gospel? Because when this woman meets Jesus, she leaves it all behind. Do you remember that question that I asked you at the beginning? When was the time that you just had to go and tell someone something? When could you just not contain your excitement? Well, this is that time for the woman. The woman runs into the middle of the town and says, verse 29, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now this invitation, come and see, echoes the invitation we've heard all throughout John's gospel. Back in John 1, Jesus' invitation to Andrew is simply, come. To Philip, it's come, follow me. And Philip to Nathaniel says, come and see. This is the invitation of Jesus. It's a personal invitation for us to leave what we know, to leave what we're doing, to come, to go, to see and experience the person of Jesus. Now notice in all these interactions, and especially the one in the story today, the people doing the inviting do not simply just stand there and kind of like explain what they've seen. They don't just recite a stream of information at people or blurt out some kind of like pre-rehearsed script. They say, my life has been changed by this. Come and see it with me. It's an invitation to experience lives changed by Jesus. Now, this woman has every reason to hide from her neighbors, to keep her head down and her shame to herself. But here she is running into town, standing up in front of everyone and saying, guys, I've seen something amazing and I want you to come and see it with me. She says, he told me everything I ever did. Now, this is, this is big, right? She's acknowledging her sin in a very public way because it doesn't matter to her anymore. She's met Jesus and the sin and the shame that was held over her, that's not her defining quality anymore. She's experienced the living water of the gospel. She's tasted its sweetness. She's been refreshed by its coolness. She's left her water jar. Her life is changed. And she wants to go and tell others about it. Church, do we have this kind of passion for sharing the good news? Do we really see this gospel message as something that everyone needs to experience? What about its priority in your own life? I think for many people, uh, they see God as sort of an add-on, you know, like a vitamin supplement, a spare wheel, kind of just-in-case kind of thing. But look at this woman. God is not an optional extra for her anymore. He's right at the center of everything. Where does God sit for you in your life? I know when I go through phases of feeling far from God, when I've neglected his word for a while because I'm busy or tired or distracted, I'm drawn back to it by stories of encouragement from other people in my life who still hold their relationship with God as priority one. 
not proudly shouting about how faithful they are, but quietly living their life with the gospel message as number one. They make choices in their social calendar, family or work schedule to prioritize the gospel message. So when my priorities shift, when, not if, this happens to all of us, when my priorities shift and the gospel falls out of that top spot, I look to others for encouragement to get it back into its rightful place. Who's like that for you in your life? Take a moment and just picture someone who you think just gets it. You know, they hold the gospel as number one. What would it take for you to become like them? They get it. The woman got it. The townspeople get it. They leave their work in the middle of the day, tools down, and come to hear Jesus. They all prioritize the message. So let's make it our priority too. Which leads me to point two. Now we see my part to play in it. Um, I want to tell you about a time when I tried to share the gospel. I had a friend at work. I'll call him Zach. Zach and I were partnered together for two years, day and night, 48 hours a week, just me and him. Obviously, you get to know each other quite well. Zach had very strong values. He had a strong sense of right and wrong, good and bad. And so that was a really easy inroad for us to be talking about these values and where they might come from, how they were at times similar to mine and at times very different to mine. Zach was a big thinker. And so he was very happy to talk about the concept of religion and faith as kind of this abstract thing out there. But when I invited him to come to some of the social events that we run here at CLG, like the Beer and Wings Night, suddenly he met other normal people, not just me, who didn't have the concept of religion out there, but who held it really closely in here. I think maybe for Zach, that idea of God moved one step closer that night. My evangelistic journey with Zach was at a pretty comfortable level at this point. But um, then his annual leave plans got cancelled. And he was free for four weeks right over the dates of the life course. And my stomach just dropped. I was like, oh gosh, now I have to invite him. (laughs) I could feel Matt breathing down my neck. And I was so nervous and I butted him up with a free lunch and all that stuff. But by God's grace, he came. All four weeks. He heard in that low-stress environment that God was real, that God loved him, that God saved him from sin, and that God wants to be in relationship with him. After life, Zach and I started reading the Bible. Uh, We met and we do the word one-to-one thing that we keep talking about, and it works very well. I would commend it to you. In just one year, Zach had moved from this skeptical view of God to sitting in my lounge room reading the Bible. And I thought, I've nailed this. I'm going to seal the deal. I should start writing those baptism prayers right now. (sighs) But then Zach got a call saying he had to move to Melbourne. Four weeks later, he was gone. And I was really sad, not just because I'd lost this really dear friend. Because I thought I was so close to getting him over the line. And now it was all for nothing. Because that's how I thought about evangelism. Like I was a salesman working on commission or something, trying to close the sale. That all evangelism was ultimately about that end point, that decision to follow Jesus. And if it doesn't end up that way, 
then it was a failure. But what Jesus says in this text today totally rebukes that idea. It it flips it on his head. Look back at the text there. We're jumping to verse 35. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. This idea that we are personally responsible for the salvation of another individual is totally unbiblical. God's mission is communal by its very nature. It's a team effort. One sows, another reaps. One plants the seed, another sees the fruit. And the power behind it all is the Holy Spirit working through us and in the lives of our friend who we want to come to know Christ. So instead of thinking about our evangelism as a salesperson trying to close the deal, think of each interaction we have as one more seed, one more water, one more moment that God is weaving together to bring people to faith in him. Back in the second week of the John series, Jamie used this analogy of a series of train carriages, all linking together to form the gospel train. All these little moments, all these little interactions that we have all linked together to form part of their journey. And regardless if we are sowing seed right at the beginning, or by God's grace, we can be there at the end and seeing the fruit, we can all be glad together. So when Zach went off to Melbourne, I was allowed to be sad, but never dismayed, because I trust that God is still working in his life. God is still putting people in his path, still sowing, and I pray that one day that will bear fruit. God allowed me to play a part in his journey, but I am one small part, one small carriage. God is still sowing. He's still watering. There's more work to be done, maybe by me, maybe not by me, but that's okay. Mission is communal. I keep praying for him and I trust that God has got it under control. Back in our story, we need to remember the situation that Jesus is in the middle of here. Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, the harvest is ready. As this whole village of Samaritan people are coming running up to the well. Uh, That bit in verse 35 there about bear being four months until harvest was probably just like a colloquial saying or something that means something along the lines of, don't rush through something, everything has to wait for the proper time. Jesus is saying, that's rubbish. The time is now. The harvest is ready. There's no formula that says how long to wait between the first gospel seed that's sown and when that person comes to faith. The harvest is ready. The seeds have been sown. And so Jesus is saying, don't be surprised if you're there at the reaping. Don't be surprised if God uses you as part of someone's faith journey. Do we really believe in a God whose spirit is at work in people? Who can break through the walls of people's hearts and bring them to faith? 
Do we really believe that when we pray for our friend or our colleague or our neighbor, that God hears those prayers and is moved to action? Of course we do. So don't be surprised if it happens. God is working in people in this world and the fields are ripe for the harvest. The message is our priority. We all have a part to play, no matter how small. And this leads to point three. The key to this message is that Jesus' word is the thing that saves. So I just want to draw together this um, key thread through all of this. What is that constant, consistent element in this story? What's the thing that gets the woman excited? What's the thing that gets the townspeople excited? It's his words. Jesus' words are what saves and brings people to faith. Let's read from verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. So what do we mean by his words? You know how some Bibles um, have that red lettering in them that sort of says everything that's a direct quote from Jesus? I think it's more than that. Jesus' physical words work together with the divine inspired words of other biblical authors to create the word of God. Right? We learned that way back in the first couple of weeks of John. To put it another way, Jesus' lowercase w words form the capital W word. And it's this capital W word that saves. But because Jesus' lowercase w words are so intimately woven into the capital W word, everything that comes out of his mouth is drenched and saturated in the capital W word. So when Jesus speaks, it's the word made flesh. And it's no coincidence then that John opens the prologue in chapter one of his gospel with in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John is obsessed with getting this idea across that it's the capital W word that saves. Look at verse 42 and this interaction between the Samaritan townspeople and the woman. Verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. We know that this man really is the savior of the world. At first, it was just based on the woman's testimony. But when they heard Jesus speak, that's when their belief was cemented. So when we're trying to tell our friends and our colleagues, our neighbors about Jesus, have this in the front of your mind. My words don't save. My human, clunky, flawed and awkward words don't save. I don't need to have an awesome conversion story that is scripted and perfectly written because my words don't save. Jesus' word saves. Hearing the word of the gospel saves. And so this should be the focus of our evangelism, to point people to his word, to speak his word in our conversation so that people's ears prick up and notice something different, 
to meditate on his word and have it on our heart so that when someone comes to us and asks, hey, what do you think about this? We can answer with an answer that is grounded in his word. To be so outwardly changed and transformed by the power of his word that people look at the life we lead and can't help but think, how can I get a piece of that? And if by God's grace you are in a position to share your faith with someone, make it clear that Jesus' word saves. Not rituals or cultural practices, not joining a church or going to a course, but it's Jesus' words. Your sins are forgiven. Your debt is paid. Jesus' words, it is finished. This is the capital W word that has the power to save. If you don't know the power of this word for your own life, then please speak with someone here today. We would love to share how our lives have been transformed by the power of this word. So for the Christians here today, we've got to get people to hear his word. That's why we promote our programs like Life and Word One-to-One. It's why we put Bibles on the chairs, why we read it out loud together, why we sing songs and do growth groups. Because our words don't save. Jesus' word saves. And if you're new to church here this morning or you're still sort of checking out who Jesus is, have you noticed that we take these words very seriously? I hope that as you meet people here today, obviously I hope that you feel really welcomed and we speak really nice words to you. But I hope even more that we speak and point to the words of Jesus. Because Jesus' word saves. The woman met Jesus at the well. She heard the word. Her life was transformed. Her priority shifted. She left her water jar and she ran to tell others. The people came, they heard the word, and many believed in his name. God used that woman through one brief interaction to bring a whole town of people to faith in him. And so I believe that God will use you, wherever your sphere of influence is, to sow gospel seeds wherever you are. Now, we may never see the fruit of that, this side of heaven, but that's okay. One sows and another reaps. We trust that God is at work by his spirit to bring people to faith. So when you go out from here, back to work tomorrow, back to study, back into your life, be like that woman. Play your part, no matter how small. Say, come and see. And invite people to come and experience the life-changing, thirst-quenching, life-saving word of Jesus. Because that is what saves. Amen.